believers, every vocation is one of service. Uh, even, maybe we should say especially, if, if that vocation involves some authority. Right? Parents have uh, a legitimate authority in their vocation in the home. And their vocation is defined by serving their children. Right? In a sense, submitting to their needs over against your own. Uh, elders in the church have uh, an authority in the church, and yet it's one that's defined in the scriptures by service to the flock, right? To the loss of their own time or to setting aside their own desires, their own ambitions. There are different stages of life, but different gifts that we all have. Um, this works itself out in different ways. But every, every person in the church should be recognizably serving others in a, in a race to the bottom, in a sense. In Jesus' terms, are you a servant? Are you, are you serving in every vocation? Are you serving in Christ's church? We could say service in love, or, or love which is worked out only meaningfully in serving others, is the single greatest way that Jesus' people are recognized. It's the single greatest way that, that, in which you imitate Jesus. We could also say that the kingdom of God, kingdom of God greatness, uh, is, is equally available to every single one of us. And greatness doesn't function in the kingdom of God and the church like it does in, in the world. It's not more available to those who have more gifts or particular gifts or more responsibility or visibility or anything like that. It's equally available to every single one of us. Thirdly, a third reason that we struggle with humble service is that our pride pushes aside whatever understanding we do have of humility. And that's reflected in the passage here. Uh, again, there are three, leading up to Jesus entering Jerusalem, there are three predictions of his suffering and his death. And every time the disciples respond in some um, inappropriate way off base uh, way, back in chapter 8, Jesus said he was going to suffer and die, and what was the response? Uh, Peter rebuked him. I said, that's, that's ridiculous, Jesus. I just, I just profess that you're the Messiah. The Messiah doesn't suffer and, and die. Uh, next chapter, Jesus will again explain that he's going to suffer and die uh, in Jerusalem. And James and John immediately respond by demanding that Jesus assure that they sit at his right hand and his left hand the, the positions of honor in his kingdom. And then here in this passage, after Jesus uh, explains, uh, they begin debating their greatness, which of them is the greatest. And yet the disciples seem to have some awareness here um, of, of the wrongness of their debate. Right? Look at verse 34 again. Jesus asked them uh, in verse 33, what, you know, what were you discussing, what were you debating on the road back there uh, right after I told you I came to be humiliated and die for you. What were you, are you arguing about? Um, it says they kept silent. They were embarrassed. Right? They, had, they had some sense that this was wrong. They understood to some degree that Jesus was demonstrating unfathomable humility and calling them to humility, to a willingness to suffer. Uh, and yet their, their pride was still pushing that aside. I think we exist in, in very similar paradox often. 
Right? In our lives, we, we read about humility in the scriptures. We talk about it in our Bible studies or with friends. We acknowledge that humility is good. But do we really live in it? You know, it's interesting, in, in our society, for all the disagreements that we might have with others, and, uh, virtually everyone uh, recognizes humility as a virtue. Right? Everyone uh, would call pride bad. Virtually everyone likes seeing humility in other people and doesn't like seeing pride and arrogance uh, in others. And yet so much of our culture wars against humility. Uh, it, it evidences and it, it leads us in, in a sort of different reality, uh, despite the fact that virtually everyone doesn't like seeing pride and, and likes seeing uh, humility. Uh, ironically, our pride moves us even to cover up pride. Uh, because of that, our pride moves us to cover up pride and portray false humility because we know that it's, it's what people like to see and that boosts our pride. Um, I think that works itself out in our way in our lives in, in many ways. Um, I think there are some some uh, public and obvious uh, examples of that. Uh, one is it, the, the, the root of it is this: in 1970, uh, I think was maybe the beginning of one trend that really illustrates that well. John Wayne was uh, receiving an Oscar for his role in in True Grit in 1970. He gave a, a famous speech in accepting that in which he said this. He said, tonight I don't feel very clever or very witty. I feel very grateful and very humble. That sound, may sound like a very ordinary um, Oscar speech because it is today, but it wasn't at the time. Uh, but every, virtually every speech since then and until now uh, receiving an Oscar, an Emmy, or something like that will include the line, I'm humbled. I'm so humbled. Now, what does humbled mean? What does humbled mean today? What did it mean in 1970? The same thing. Uh, it means to be, to be knocked down, right? Made to feel little, to feel of lesser worth, right? Whether it's, uh, it doesn't mean it's, it's wrong. It, it could be um, uh, a correct view of yourself. And so it's actually a bizarre thing to say, a dishonest thing to say, I'm, I'm so humbled. Right? It has become normal. A couple years ago, uh, Steph Curry, if you follow the NBA at all, he received the, the first ever uh, unanimous MVP award in the NBA, in NBA history. And he said he was so humbled to receive it. Right? Undoubtedly, what he felt was actually very proud. Right? Humility is what you would feel if you were expecting to receive the reward and you were uh, unanimously rejected for it. Right? That would be humbling. Um, when I was a little kid, Barry Bonds was playing for the Pirates uh, near where I lived. So, uh, Barry Bonds' example a few years ago, he was, he's been retired for a while, but he was a hitting coach for the Miami Marlins and he was fired from that position. And in the statement he released, he said that he was very humbled to have been hired. Right? Humbled is what you feel when you're fired, right? not when you're hired. Um, a couple of years ago, an actress was receiving an Oscar, and she said that she was beyond humbled to receive it. Now, again, humbled means to be knocked low, made little. Right? What is beyond humbled? A, a suicidal depression? or I, I don't know. But um, there, There's literally almost nothing less humbling than receiving an Emmy or an Oscar, an NBA MVP. These are some of the most exalting things that could happen to you uh, in our world. 
So what's going on here? Have you, have you ever wondered that? I, I think it's one of the strangest cultural, pop cultural phenomenon um, that we see, and yet is maybe a reflection of how our hearts work. Uh, in general, because with, I think without a shred of doubt what these celebrity examples are feeling is two things. One is immense pride, uh, and the second, though, is an intense fear of being perceived as prideful. Right? And so, like the disciples here, right? they remain silent. Uh, so what comes out is a little lie that meets people's approval, meets people's expectations, I'm so humbled. Uh, there's a fascinating article about this phenomenon in the Atlantic from a few years ago. Uh, if you're familiar with that publication or, or want to read uh, more about this curious um, thing, the, the I'm so humbled phenomenon. But it, in, it includes research of sociologists and psychologists on uh, how audiences perceive people who are receiving awards okay, and how they, um, how they react. Now, they always prefer to see humility and never prefer to see pride. So that's why uh, a more recent Oscar speech from director James Cameron won, ran on stage, grabbed his award, and said, I'm the king of the world, is rated as one of the worst speeches ever <laughs> among audiences, and John Wayne's is rated among one of the best uh, ever. Well, the gospel in which God humbled himself and became a man and suffered unjustly and died an unjust and brutal, shameful death in your place teaches you, uh, first, that you deserve to feel no pride in yourself if you see the guilt and the cost of your sin in the cross. It secondly, teaches there is no shame in humility, in lowliness, in service. There's no shame in it. We don't have to hide pride or, or fake humility or any of these games. There's nothing to hide because Jesus has identified with you and died for you. And in fact, the scriptures teach there is only glory and reward ultimately in humility, true humility. And fourthly and finally, uh, we, we struggle with this because we fail perhaps with the disciples to really comprehend Jesus' own example. Uh, it's generally believed for various reasons that um, the likely source for much of what Mark wrote in his gospel is Peter. Um, Peter's first-hand accounts. And uh, we don't know that for sure, but I just want you to imagine for a moment Peter relating to Mark with sadness, likely, and shame many years later um, how he rebuked Jesus when he told him he was, he was going to die for him. And then relating to Mark, how he was there debating on the road whether he was the greatest. Again, right on the heels of Jesus, telling of his own humiliation and suffering. Well, we can see how drastically Peter's perspective changed over the years in reading his letter many years later, 1 Peter chapter 5, where he urges his readers, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Well, what, is, what is the difference between Peter who rebuked Jesus and then was there debating whether he was the greatest and, and the Peter who 
eventually, according to church history, gave his life for Jesus and urged his readers to humble themselves before God. Humble yourselves before each other. What's the difference? I think undoubtedly it, it, was, it was seeing and understanding the cross. It was seeing the ugliness, the cost of his sin in the cross and Jesus dying. It was seeing the perfect, loving, infinitely exalted Son of God willingly humiliated and die for him. Despite his denying Jesus and abandoning him that, that very night. Jesus, of course, again, had told Peter again and again about his coming suffering and death that it was going to happen, why it was happening, but it didn't sink in. And so I just want to challenge you this morning with the question, has it, has it sunk in with you? Does your life reflect the cross? Here in this passage we read this morning, it wasn't yet quite Jesus' time to die, and so he gave a little object lesson, verse 36. Taking a child, he set him before them. Taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And this would be a powerful image for the disciples, maybe more so than us. Um, children were viewed the same way in that culture as they are in ours. Our culture is in many ways child-centered, um, youth culture-driven and advertising in many other ways. Um, and their children were, were much more lowly. Partly that, part of that is probably that most children died before they were several years old in that time in history. And so they weren't thought, they were loved within their families certainly, but weren't thought of a lot socially until adulthood. And so a child, a little child, is a good example of someone who's lowly and unimportant. And notice, Jesus is not using the child as an example here. The child is not our example. Elsewhere in the, in the scriptures, uh, a child is. But Jesus is the example. right? Someone who would receive a child. Uh, the example is receiving and serving and giving attention to someone who is inconsequential. Right, who's lowly. His example of humble service to us is giving time and attention and, and resources and service to someone who can't give you any social advantage through that, who can't pay you back. Uh, you, you get no acclaim uh, through it. You can't get any leverage socially through doing it. Uh, you, you most clearly serve God when you serve those who are lowly and, and undeserving and needy. And so the scriptures point us again and again to Jesus' example in this. What the disciples had yet to understand is that Jesus becoming a man, and especially in dying for them, was an infinitely more powerful example of serving those who are lowly and undeserving. And so this is, this is our main example in this. In Luke 22 Jesus asked the disciples, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, who's, who's there eating as a guest, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? It's, it's not the servants, right? But Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. In Matthew 20, Jesus said, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, let's close this morning with Paul's encouragement that we be like Jesus with a prayer that we as a congregation would, uh, Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
Although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you uh, again for your word and for the example and the teaching of Jesus. We ask for your grace as we struggle, as the disciples did, to, uh, to really understand or even want to understand uh, the implications uh, of discipleship and the following uh, Savior who uh, suffered and died with us and for us. Uh, help us to see the, the infinite blessing and benefit uh, in your way uh, in that. Though. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.